Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzoo Vine for May 17th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. And Catherine Smith's not here. She's feeling a little under the weather, so hopefully she'll be back with us next week. And here in about 20 minutes, we're excited about our guest for at least the third time on the Kudzu Vine from Catawba College, uh, political science professor Michael Bencer is going to be on the show, an expert on North Carolina politics, writes a blog called uh, Bowtie Politics, and while I think he writes about more than just the Tar Heel State, he does do a lot of focus on the Tar Heel State, and I think he actually has degrees from both Clemson and Georgia, so he's not totally unversed in those two states as well so um a really uh broad notion but you know what tim we're not going to have time for anything else but north carolina politics when he comes on since there's so much happening there boy i'll say that that state is that state is one to watch in multiple ways uh and and the Republicans and Trump and all of them are going to make it even more so. He's already started in, you know, attacking their governor up there. But I'm sure we'll get into all of that when our guest comes on. We will. But until then, we're going to talk about nasty campaigns. And we're going to just kind of talk about what's happened and speculate how nasty this thing's going to get. And for Exhibit A um, – Eric was it was it was it was Don Jr. Eric Trump said something right. else dumb, but Don Jr. Um, he posted some type of um, graphic that had a uh, alligator and it says "See you later, crocodile." And then it was a picture of Joe Biden under it says uh, "In a while," or maybe it was over that uh, alligator "In a while, pedophile." So he basically mm-hmm. called Joe Biden a pedophile. Which um, there is, let's just say, I mean, mean, less than zero uh, grounds for anything like that. Um, And and so it really, of all the things that were said, you know, the old James Blaine, Grover Cleveland campaign, how nasty that got. I I think some of the early uh, first presidential campaigns got really, really nasty. And of all the things that have been said, that's one of the nastiest when you figure it's not coming from some just random supporter. It's coming from the person who's going to be the Republican nominee's oldest son. Um, Tim, how, how shocked were you by that? Not at all, because this is their MO. Uh, I, I, I know it might be hard to top the campaign 1824. It's probably the nastiest one in history. Uh, between uh, Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, but but these guys are are going to try it. And Trump Trump has been you know going negative since the day he walked onto the stage. He hasn't stopped. He hasn't stopped when he's got elected. He didn't stop with his inaugural speech, and he's not going to stop now. Of course, his campaign's going to go very negative and quickly. He has 170 days uh, as of today to change the trajectory of the race, which has not been going well for him. And I imagine his surrogates and his sons are are surrogates will do the heaviest dirty work early. And, And I also think he'll pull out the same playbook that that he used so successfully in 2016. Uh, You know, it's like he he can't raise his own approval rating. We've talked about it on here, David, over and over and over and over and over, that he's just stuck 43, 44 lower. Um, 
and, and he and he just can't move off of that, and his disapproval is like fifty one, fifty two percent stuff. He can't move that either. So what he wants to do is turn to his opponent and lower his approvals with a vicious line of attack. Of course he's going to do this pedophile stuff. He's going to attack Hunter Biden as well. We've already seen that. He's going to call for investigations. He might even have Barr over there saying, yeah, I'm going to investigate this, that, and the other. Uh, And if he gets Biden's approvals down with a withering attack, then all things are equal in Trump's mind. Um, so that, that that's what I'm expecting to happen. Of course it's going to happen. Well, you mentioned so many things, but one was uh, Hunter Biden. They've done that. It really didn't seem to have much of an effect. I mean, that was during the primary in which Democrats could have said, okay, we are worried about this. Um, it didn't move Democrats. Then when it comes to general, it seemingly had no impact on the general. I don't think that you know Hunter Biden's going to be on anybody's most admired um, people list, but people see that Joe Biden has multiple children, and and Bo was a you know a real hero. I mean the way he you know went, fought in Iraq and fought cancer and different things. So they're not going to judge um, Joe Biden on the totality of what. Hunter Biden did, and I'm sick. Keep taking the stuff in Eastern Europe, not even worry about it. Cause some of that's just made up out of whole cloth. I'm just talking about the other stuff um, that we do know about. Um, it just hadn't worked, uh, uh, Tim. If it doesn't work, why is he going to keep on it? Well, because that's like I said, that's his mo. That's what he's always done. That's all he's ever known to do is to fight dirty. Uh, Look, he starts on defense, Trump does. We've talked about this polling in recent weeks. I mean, that's why his first two public appearances, you know, were in Arizona and Pennsylvania. He trails in both states, and in Pennsylvania, he trails beyond the margin of error. If I'm putting out a political map right now, the Electoral College, I am coloring Pennsylvania a very light blue. Uh, and so, in Trump's mind, that that's what he's he he's got to do. Uh, he needs to desperately turn his attention away, or turn the nation's attention away from this pandemic, and go on. Uh, you know the attack. What's the best way to do that? Dream up a scandal. Uh, Notice I said dream up a scandal and not talk about a scandal because there's really not a scandal out there to talk about, and not just Biden either, as we both know, right? There's another bigger name that we need to talk about that our beloved president is also trying to work into this huge scandal with the assistance of a couple of uh, media outlets, right? Yes, and we're going to get to there real quickly, but I did want to ask, since you mentioned Pennsylvania being so critical, and I think it was just today uh, Doug Sosnick said that, you know, when you look at how important certain states are, Pennsylvania is like one of the, you know, the five-step plan. It's step two. Um, But Joe Biden is doing well in Pennsylvania. It could just be that Pennsylvania is returning to its normal roots of, you know, it voted for – John Kerry it voted for Al Gore, it voted for Barack Obama twice, um, and then 2016 was an anomaly. But I do want to ask, Joe Biden was born in Scranton, had family in Scranton, now grew up mainly in Delaware, but then Delaware, part of the state, is in the Philadelphia media market. So I've never watched enough Philadelphia television. I was there, but I was seeing things. I wasn't watching TV in a hotel room, but I'm assuming that portion of Delaware, they will mention Delaware politicians and Delaware politics. So that means in two different parts of the state, both in the eastern half, Joe Biden has some um, Pennsylvania advantages, if you will. How much is that in play, Tim, and how much is it just that Pennsylvania is just turn away from Donald Trump and Joe Biden's the alternative? 
Uh, well, first of all, I do not believe Donald Trump supporters in Pennsylvania have turned away from Donald Trump. I believe they will be out there voting in mass. Uh, well, I mean, Pennsylvania what, what, is a state. Yeah. Yeah. What What we have to talk about, though, in Pennsylvania is the fact that Hillary Clinton underperformed in a place like Philadelphia that is probably going to give a much bigger vote to Joe Biden, uh, especially with African-American and upwardly mobile people in the suburbs. They're going to vote at a higher rate for Joe Biden than they did for Hillary Clinton. At least that's what it looks like now. Donald Trump is not, is not losing steam with his folks in in Pennsylvania. Biden has just gotten more steam. This time we we just uh, Pennsylvania may be one of those places where we simply outvote them. Hillary Clinton lost the state by a little over forty thousand votes, I believe. Uh, Biden should easily make that up. Uh, she she dropped like ten percentage points in turnout for African American voters in Philadelphia alone. Uh, that's that's that needs to change this year. I think that's going to change, and I think that's what's going on in Pennsylvania. And because Philadelphia and its suburbs so dominate the state, if they get a massive Democratic turnout right there. Uh, as a lot of my Pennsylvania friend, political friends have told me, that's the ball game. She didn't do that. So it was the ball game in the opposite direction while Trump was overperforming in those rural counties. And I, I think he'll continue to overperform. I'm thoroughly convinced that uh, his, his devotees are just that, devoted. Uh, but the latest thing I'm seeing up there is like six and a half point aggregate polling. That's a pretty good lead. It is. Yes. Um, well, let's move on to that other thing you talked about. And it happened uh, roughly a week ago. And I think it's very much a, a bad move. Um, but. Donald Trump started something called Obamagate, and of course, if you want to know what that is, uh, he'll tell you what that is by not telling you what that is. Um, but it's apparently mm-hmm. wanting to somehow subpoena the f- former president to into I don't know if it'd be a House or a Senate. I guess it'd have to be a Senate because he's asking Lindsey Graham uh, a Senate um, investigation, a hearing where he'd come testify about what went on in the last few months of his presidency regarding the Russia investigation and this, that, and the other. Um, Lindsey Graham even thinks this is a bad idea, and it's pretty much thrown all kinds of cold water water on it. I don't know if that's because, he, as he said, that sets a bad precedent um, for calling in former presidents, which is something that's not done, or Lindsey Graham's enough astute enough politician that she that he knows why bring in one of the top political campaign figures um, in the past uh, half century, even more so than he already will be, and making his uh, base voters or supporters even angrier. Uh, Tim, your take on this? Well, my my take is that, of course, the president's out of his mind. But, you know, what we have to do is try to figure out Trump's take on this. Why would he do something so crazy? What is his angle? Well, he thinks, you know what? In 2016, when I beat Hillary Clinton, I beat Barack Obama, too, because he was campaigning against me. And, and you know, Trump may have it in his head that Obama was involved in this grand conspiracy to try to get him beat, and he prevailed anyway, and now it's time for payback. And another thing I think he believes, and I mentioned this to you before we went on the air uh, today, is I do think Trump is taking a calculated gamble in which he believes the benefit of him attacking Obama is uh, 
better or are preferable to the negative aspect of it, the downside of it. I believe he thinks that it will rouse his base up to a fever pitch, which would overcome any anger on the other side of the aisle. Um, I think he is sadly mistaken about that. I believe it could really hurt him, uh, you know, in, in, in the upper Midwest, places like Michigan, Ohio, uh, that area of the country where President Obama was from. It'll kill him with African-American uh, male voters, which he was trying to make some inroads with. Uh, it, it'll hurt him with Hispanic voters, I believe, which he was also trying to make some inroads with. Uh, but still, I think Donald Trump thinks the benefits out, outweigh the risk here, and he's going to go ahead and do it. And I think he's going to build this whole mythological scandal, and he's going to involve Obama, and he's going to involve Hillary Clinton again, and he's going to involve the vice president and anyone else he can think of. And the, you know what the scary thing is, though? This guy is just making overtones about putting people on trial and calling people in to... to to, to committees to testify and stuff like this, and and we're talking about him going after now, David. Think about this: the person he replaced, the person that he defeated for the presidency four years ago, and the person he's running against now. I mean, you talk about straight out of the despot's playbook. How else am I supposed to see that? Well, he, he ran his uh, pre-presidential career. If he didn't like something, he'd sue somebody. Now that he's in government, the move is um, lock them up, you know, whoever it may be, seemingly. Um, well, let's go ahead. You were talking about states uh, that Barack Obama may – uh, being brought more into the fray may help. Uh, we may mention that somehow when we talk about North Carolina with our guests. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Michael Bitzer. It's good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Sure thing. Well, let's just kind of start somewhat right there. Um, North Carolina is a state that's been in play in the past few elections, maybe 2016, not as much as 2008 and 2012, but it appears it's going to be back in play again in 2020. What's your in-state take? I think certainly North Carolina continues to be a battleground state. Uh, we've been talking about North Carolina kind of pre and post 2008. I mean, you just have to go back to 2004 and 2008. When George W. Bush won the state by 13 percentage points, and if anybody had said at the beginning of 2008, can a Democrat win based on what we've seen in the past, I don't think that they would have predicted the Obama ground game. But, you know, that flipped the state into kind of the purple tint that we are now. I still kind of say that North Carolina is a center lean slightly right state it's it's more advantage republicans than it is democrats but if democrats have a good candidate and an excellent ground game and motivate their political uh, electoral base then they can make this state competitive and they can win in north carolina Yes, we've had a guest, and it's been over a year ago, that kind of described North Carolina this way. The Democratic voters were moving somewhat to the left, but the Republican mm -hmm. voters were moving even farther to the right. 
And the middle, sure. even though it's become the swing state, it's not that voters are moving in the middle and some Republicans have become Democratic voters or what have you. It's just a lot of intensity. Is that still kind it, of the it case is. in 2020? Yes, it is very much intensity. It's very much energy. It's very much mobilization. Uh, I think the Democratic base now is primarily in urban counties, uh, particularly central cities, so Charlotte, Raleigh, Asheville, uh, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, you know, those major metropolitan areas, like the nation as a whole, have moved more and more Democratic. Uh, If you look at 2016's presidential election, Hillary Clinton won the central cities with 66% of the vote. Where the Republican base now is, is in the surrounding suburban counties and rural counties. And so in surrounding suburban counties, Donald Trump won with 65% of the vote. So you've kind of got a battle going on between the core urban areas, the surrounding suburbs, and to a lesser extent, rural counties, they went about 60% for Donald Trump. The real battleground in North Carolina right now are the suburbs within urban counties. So take, for example, Charlotte and Mecklenburg County, the suburbs, the tiny cities outside of Charlotte but still inside uh, Mecklenburg County, those suburbs went across the state, went 49-48 Clinton over Trump. So your real battleground are in those kind of suburban within an urban county versus those surrounding suburban counties. But I, I think, you know, this the state is going to be evenly divided, but it depends on what region you're looking at in terms of the gaps between the two parties. Yes. Now, now talking about it, one place that's not a big city that um, could lean more Democratic, but it's still rural, is I know when you go – East of the research triangle, until you hit the coast, you have Greenville, which is sort of a decent-sized city. East Carolina's there. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot of African-American voters, but rural areas. I'm not sure which counties are majority this way or that way. Is there a, kind of a secret to getting those voters out and the non-Charlotte and Greensboro and big cities yeah. that can also play a factor? Oh, very much so. So you're talking about basically the eastern part, the the part, you know, I-95 and kind of towards the coast. That is very much the classic, what we call black belt in the south, the majority minority counties of North Carolina, heavy Democratic, heavy uh, black voters in those areas. The issue is how do they get energized and mobilized to turn out? And what happened was Hillary Clinton did not have the appeal that Barack Obama did in those areas, and black turnout was down across the state, but in particular those regions. So really the the Biden campaign, having come off the success of the South Carolina primary vote into North Carolina, I think has got the opportunity to rebuild that Obama coalition and try and bring in some energy and enthusiasm, perhaps through his pick for vice president. But we'll just have to wait and see who that is. Yes. Well, I'm going to ask you one more question that has more of a national feel to it before I pass it to Tim for some other things. Uh, Like we said at the top of the show, North Carolina has so many topics, um, so much excitement in your state. (laughs) Um, But that is the the right now – uh, the Republican National Committee uh, is planning to have their um, convention in Charlotte, and there's a lot of facets here. Um, but let's just kind of start off. Let's just pretend, um, you know, it's January 1st, 2020, let's say, and we're not smart enough to know that we need to be preparing for the pandemic. Um, what was the convention looking like at that time as far as? Um, what the city had planned, and then what impact that might have had on the race um, in the state. 
Yeah, well, I think certainly going into this year, uh, the convention plans in Charlotte, Charlotte almost felt like I think they were the last man standing because nobody else really was vying for the Republican National Convention. No major city had put forward, you know, an aggressive uh, proposal and Charlotte has become more and more democratic. I mean, it's got a democratic mayor. Uh, city council is very democratic. The county commission is as well. So, you know, they, they were looking at hosting the opposition party. And certainly Mayor Vile Wiles, the democratic uh, mayor, was, was aggressive in pushing forward for the Republicans to come in because the Democrats uh, back in 2012 when Barack Obama was seeking his renomination, uh, the, 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 the then governor, uh, Pat McCrory, a Republican, was actively courting them. So she felt, I think, maybe a little bit of we need to reciprocate and host the RNC as well. What has happened since the uh, COVID outbreak has been, you know, Democrats really looking at, is this a wise and viable thing to have in a public health situation, what we potentially be seeing come the fall? Nobody knows what the pandemic is going to be like come the fall, but, you know, if you're talking about fifteen to 50,000 people coming in to a major urban area, that's got a real concern, and Mecklenburg is leading the state in the number of cases of COVID-19. In terms of, of the Republicans' view on the, the convention, they certainly want to energize and mobilize their base here in North Carolina because if they don't have North Carolina in their win column for the White House, it's a hard stretch to then start to pull off some other states to compensate for those 15 electoral votes. So I think, you know, North Carolina is certainly more important to the Republicans than necessarily the Democrats. But down the ballot, we're going to be a kind of focus of national attention, presidential, U.S. Senate, governor's races, all the way down the ballot, I think. Oh, and we're going to get to some of that. Tim's uh, got a lot of questions on that. I'm going to have one more follow-up on the convention, and then I'm going to pass it on to Tim. Uh, Talking about this convention, let's say that – and I don't know what the date is, where the, the kind of the drop dead date to either. So we're not having it to be virtual, or we are going to have it. But let's say um, whatever date that is, it looks like the Charlotte, uh, I'm sorry, the Carolina Panthers aren't going to play. The Charlotte Hornets aren't going to have fans in their arena. Uh, maybe you know UNC and North Carolina State and whichever other colleges, Duke, they're not going to have football games. Your other colleges may not be having students. They may still be virtual learning. It looks like an unsafe environment to have big groups. But then Donald Trump doesn't believe the science and wants his big convention, and there's a disagreement. What do the leaders of Charlotte do in that situation? (laughs) That's a great question that I don't think anybody necessarily – knows the answer to right now. I think it's going to be more than just the Charlotte leaders, particularly the mayor. I think also Governor Cooper, Roy Cooper, a Democrat, is probably going to be pulled into this as well. This past week, you saw Donald Trump make some accusations against the governor, saying that uh, Governor Cooper was trying to politicize the decision on public health and, and the issue of the convention coming up. You know, I, I, I honestly just have no idea how if we face a second wave of COVID-19, how you host 15,000 delegates from around the country, members of the media from around the world who would come and be in an enclosed space like the Spectrum Center. I, I just don't know how that happens. Now, we could catch a break. The, the pandemic may ease out before the fall uh, season really sets in and things are, are a go. But I, I don't know anybody who knows the answer right now to the question. I think they're just taking it literally week by week. Certainly so. If you're taking it week by week, you're doing better than some of us, which it's almost day by day. Um, well, like we said, there's a lot more to talk about, so I'm going to pass it to Tim so he can ask you about some of these topics. Tim? Sure. 
Good evening, Dr. Bitzer. Thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, My pleasure. All of the news about Senator Burr lately has, shall we say, been of the negative nature. He's obviously been a naughty boy with the stock market and and some other things. And on the other side, we have Senator Tillis in the political fight of his life for re-election. And, and so the question is, is it possible that the actions of Senator Burr are negatively affecting the campaign of Senator Tillis, or, or do voters separate those two? Boy, that's a good question. And I think we need, you know, a little more time, you know, with the news breaking of the FBI search and seizure of uh, Senator Burr's personal phone. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I think we need some time to kind of see how that was. Burr's approval ratings were really lower than Senator Tillis was in in some recent polls. Now, whether there will be a spillover effect uh, from Senator Burr to Senator Tillis, uh, the only thing I could potentially see is if Senator Burr is forced to resign before the beginning of September, that would trigger a a second election on the same ballot as Senator Tillis. Now, the the pattern here in North Carolina is that we are basically a top-down kind of party loyalty voting behavior, meaning how you Mm -hmm. vote at the top of the ticket kind of trails all the way down the ballot. And Senator Tillis uh, has a very strong connection to the president, and I think he's tied his campaign to the success, potentially, or failure, potentially, of the Trump campaign here in North Carolina. So how the Burr campaign and, and the issues surrounding him kind of spill over, I'm not sure we know at this particular point in time, but if things continue to go south, if public opinion turns against the president's, you know, approval and performance with COVID-19, I think that there could be some real impact on Senator Tillis going into the fall campaign. Now, your state has a Democratic governor, a Democratic attorney general, a Democratic secretary of state, On the other hand, you also have two Republican senators, a Republican Mm -hmm. lieutenant governor, a Republican-dominated legislature. Now, that's the definition of split down the middle, if, if, (laughs) if I've ever heard it. Number one, how is it that North Carolina voters walk into the polls all over the state and come up with this mix? And number two, is it fair to describe your state as a as a microcosm of the country right now? Yeah, the great questions. Uh, to the first question, I, I would throw you back to 2004 when this state voted for George W. Bush by 13 percentage points, turned mm-hmm. around and voted for a Democrat, Mike Easley, by 13 percentage points. So we we have been schizophrenic. We have been uh, bipartisan and bipolar, if you want to describe North Carolina in those terms, because we have a very strong legacy of split-ticket voting. Now, what has happened since 2008 is that that opportunity for split-ticket voting has decreased considerably. Roy Cooper only won his election by a little over 10,000 votes when Donald Mm -hmm. Trump won the state by a little over three and a half percentage points. So Mm -hmm. certainly North Carolina is willing to split their tickets, um, but, but you have to be the right kind of candidate kind of very much in the middle, even though both sides are very polarized Uh, in this environment. I think North Carolina is a microcosm when it comes to polarization. I think we're Mm -hmm. we're kind of evenly divided, but Mm -hmm. both sides are becoming more and more entrenched in their 
partisan lenses and the way they see things. And that, that is in a, that, that's an issue that is confronting the country as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly uh, enough, you, you mentioned Governor Cooper and Donald Trump in 2016, and as luck mm-hmm. would have it, here we are four years later, and both of them at the top of their tickets again in North Carolina. Is it very possible that the voters will be schizophrenic again and give Governor Cooper and Donald Trump both a victory in this state, or is it going to happen that one party wins both races or the other party wins both races? Yeah, I've learned after 2016, uh, my crystal ball is, is severely cracked. So trying to make predictions necessarily in this state is is a fool's errand. I would not be surprised. Let me put it this way. I would not be surprised if indeed we repeated 2016 with North Carolina voting Republican, presidential, Democratic at the gubernatorial level. Governor Cooper's approval ratings and performance on COVID have been much stronger than Donald Trump's approval or his performance on COVID. Now, likely by the time we get into September and October, things are going to balance out. Everybody's going to go to their respective partisan camps, and it's going to be a battle down the line. Uh, But I Mm -hmm. would not be surprised at all if we had that split ticket voting pattern once again. Mm -hmm. One more question, and it's about – your congressional outlook in the state, uh, as you know, because of uh, actions by the courts, uh, your state faces what I would charitably describe an upheaval uh, at the congressional level. Is it safe to say, I, I know right now I think you've got like, only three Democratic congressmen in the whole state. Is it safe to say that when the smoke clears, the Democrats are going to pick up two or three seats this cycle there? I, I think definitely two. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if I had to make a prediction, I think the, the Democrats will come away with uh, five congressional seats, just simply the way that the new districts have been drawn uh, to mm-hmm. formally Republican districts, one held by George Holding, the other one by Mark Walker, have moved much mm-hmm. more Democratic. And so the mm-hmm. pattern of party loyalty, I think we'll end up probably seeing an eight to five split uh, in, in North Carolina. We're likely to pick up another seat, a 14th seat. So when redistricting comes around next year, it's going to be really interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. But I, I do think Democrats have as strong a shot of picking up those two seats. They're contesting some others, and there may be a surprise depending on how big any kind of push one way or the other is. But I think the safe bet in conventional wisdom now is Democrats definitely pick up two to to increase their number to five. All right. I thank you for that, Doctor. And with that, I will throw it back to David. David? All right. Yes, Dr. Bitzer, um, you did mention um, uh, COVID-19, and I've noticed on your Twitter feed for, unfortunately, a few weeks now, um, you've put the numbers kind of in a, a visual way. Uh, you've taken uh, football stadiums, I guess mainly college football stadiums, and, you know, basically said how many people have died and, and the football stadium yeah. that would feel as it kind of keeps going. Um do you feel it's kind of important and helpful to have people visualize them in some way? Because, you know, of course, you get people saying, oh, well, these people die in car accidents or these people die of the flu and kind of minimize it. Um, kind of what was your thought process with coming up with that? Well, I'm a child of the ACC and also have a, a degree from an SEC school. So I'm, I'm a big college football fan. And it it just struck me that the numbers at some point just get to to a level where people really couldn't 
maybe either fathom or couldn't conceptualize what those numbers meant. I mean, over 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Well, then I started thinking about, well, you know, that's enough to fill, you know, start to fill a football stadium. And, and it just kind of, I've done a thread here and, and unfortunately we passed my, one of my alma maters, uh, Death Valley in Clemson with the latest numbers so far. I think, you know, for folks trying to wrap their head around what this pandemic in only a matter of, you know, less than two months or a little bit over two months have, has done is, is something visually people can look at a stadium filled and say, wow, that, that equates to that. That equates to a, you know, Clemson USC game that equates to a, to a, North Carolina NC State game uh, and 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 I just I felt like for my own kind of perceptions of things seeing that really drove it home in terms of what kind of public health crisis we talk about you know we talk about you know we hear the issues of the flu of car accidents but that's typically in a year we're talking about two and a half months and and we're filling some of the biggest college football stadiums in in the country with the number of deaths and and these numbers may be underestimating to be quite honest so it's been something that i do not look forward to every time i see the numbers because i think okay what's the next stadium that that we have you know to fill and and speak to this this you know horrific crisis that the country is going through yeah and unfortunately by the time it's over even this first wave you you know will fill up michigan stadium which i guess is the largest and you'll be out of stadiums which is a very sober thing to think about um yeah because it's you know gone on so unchecked um well dr bitzer i just want to thank you for coming on um before we let you go, I'm going to tell you, I just saw today as I was looking something up that you have actually written about politics and the Simpsons, and we're not able to have this <laughs> certainly today, and we're not going to even probably have it before the November 2020 election, so even if you come on. But at some point, maybe when things get calm, which will be nice, uh, Tim and Catherine have heard me make you know Simpson analogies. Uh, to politics before, so I have got to have you on at some point to just discuss that as maybe one of a few topics <laughs> in the future. I would love to. The, the, I, I actually teach a course called Homer's American Odyssey, The American Dream and the Simpsons, and it's all about satire in our society, so uh, happy, more than happy to uh, pontificate upon the Simpsons anytime. Well, you're going to have to put that on like a master class or um, great courses or something uh, so people can buy that content even if they're not enrolled in your university because that sounds like something the world has to have. Um, well, well, thanks again for coming on. Before you leave, you know, what you shared with us with the football stadiums, but you, of course, have a lot of other posts. Just tell folks where they can read you there on social media or at your um, politics site. Yeah, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Bowtie Politics, all one word. And I've got a blog site on North Carolina politics, and that's oldnorthstatepolitics.com. Yes, well, uh, great reading in both places. And um, thanks so much for coming on tonight. My pleasure as always. Y'all take care. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. All mm-hmm. right. Yes, great to have Dr. Bitzer. Um, in addition to that, you'd be amazed at how many different things um, he has either written himself or contributed chapters to, even worked with Larry Sabato. And, of course, you know our friends Miles Coleman and Kyle Kondik work with him every day, and so Michael Bitzer's oh, in David. that orbit as well. Um, yeah, David, I know you're, you're a big fan of the Cook Political Report. They wrote an excellent store article about our guests tonight and some of the stats and facts and figures and how he really dives 
deep down into the stats to break down elections and stuff. And, you know, I just encourage folks to go read this guy because he, he's good. <laughs> Definitely so. And, of course, you know, I can't say it enough. You know, because the convention of one of the parties is going to be there, it may be – it may pass Georgia and, you know, possibly the most – interesting state i mean it has a governor's race i don't think it's as much in play as it was it has a huge senate race if that other senate seat were to open up i mean no doubt north carolina would be the state um yeah from all the things going on more than you know arizona's up there high to texas uh could get up there but um north carolina is just just a fascinating state in you know I, I agree with him i agree with him on 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 one major, major item, too. If the Republicans lose that state, you go to looking at the map, and it's going to be very hard for them to go around the map somewhere and make that up. I think Trump figures he can lose. You you know, he picked up Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. He could afford to lose two of those three and still eke out an electoral college win. But if he's tra- having trouble in the upper Midwest and you combine that with a loss in North Carolina, I want to ask you honestly, do you see a formula there or a path where Trump could win re-election? Uh, probably not because he's probably then lost Arizona at that point. Uh, two yeah. of the most similar states, um, as far as the way they're kind of trending, are Georgia and North Carolina. North Carolina's a little faster than Georgia. I think that's due to having more population bases around the state, whereas Atlanta's the you know the 800-pound gorilla, the big city, bigger than Charlotte. Um, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, the Research Triangle with Raleigh and those other cities, they're bigger than mm-hmm. Savannah and Augusta. Um, so it's spread out a little more. Asheville's in there. and so, um, But they're very similar states, and so that means he's going to be having problems in Georgia. Um, and yeah. in Texas, of course, you know, sort of similar, has a little bit you know, of that southern nature to it um, in the Sun Belt and growing and, and, and things like that. Um, well, let's kind of well, continue to talk about. Oh, go ahead, Tim. Well, I was going to ask you another question. Well, go ahead. Well, you know, we were talking about the dirty aspects of the campaign before our guest come uh, came on, and and we we might as well keep talking about the campaign itself, especially in light of what you and he just discussed about the Republican National Convention. Now, as we know. This year, the Democrats will have to go first because they are the opposition party, and the Republicans will go last. Republicans are basically throwing down the gauntlet and saying, we are going to have a convention. As a matter of fact, we're going to have 50,000 people come uh, for our convention. Now you're the Democrats, and you've been talking about you know, a virtual convention or a one-day, very toned-down thing or this or that, What does that force the Democrats' hand uh, because of the optics that it would present to the country? Well, here's the trick. I think the cover for whichever party is going to be provided by sports and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, if every sporting event for the remainder of 2020 is held in, you know, Disney Sports World with no fans, and the MLS is talking about doing a tournament down there with no fans, be fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking about you know sending everybody to Vegas and playing a basketball tournament. Talk about going to Arizona doing the baseball schedule. Mm-hmm. If uh, college football, if they play in February, uh, that'd be so weird. But if all those sports don't happen, we know most of the big concert tours are canceled. Um, so it's not like you're going to see empty concert halls. I and mean, we see people play at home and they you know, put it on the Internet. If Broadway plays don't happen, if, the, if movie theaters just don't simply open back up. And we know some of the blockbuster movies, they hadn't committed to putting them on TV yet. 
they're still going to wait and see what happens there. They pushed some back to November. I know the James Bond movie did. But what I'm getting to is if all of these other things, let's say they happen, and they do have fans. NFL games, they say, hey, we can get 50,000 in a stadium. We have a few empty seats. Um, you know, basketball has crowds. Baseball gets tough crowds. All these things. And the Democratic convention is peopleless. They're going to look scared, mm-hmm. and that's not good. But in the opposite, if everybody else, no fans, nobody, or it doesn't happen, and then Donald Trump, you know, goes into the um, Charlotte Hornets arena and, you know, has 20,000 people, and I don't know if what happens if people do get sick, are they not going to, you know, report the symptoms because they have to protect their leader or um, what? But if they're the only ones meeting, are they going to look unsafe? I think that's going to be the deal. Now, you could have two conventions with people, and then everything else doesn't meet, and then everybody would think, well, politicians are just crazy. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Well, the, 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 the problem the Democrats have is they're going to have to decide first. They, they really are. We are. I mean, the Republicans, when they say we're going to have a convention, all these people are coming. I believe that that's what they're going to do because that's what their commander-in-chief is saying we're going to do. He's going to have that giant convention, this coronation with with everything he can think of there, uh, and it's just going to happen. So, you know, the whole decision now is, is on the Democrats, and when do they make it? You just can't make this decision at the last minute and go because people, you know, are going to the convention from all over the country. They've got to raise money, some of them. They've got to uh, get hotel rooms. They've got to make all of these plans, and you just can't do that overnight. And then the whole city has got to know something early enough, you know, or you come in or not, and when do and when is the drop dead date on this? Uh, it's going to be a tough decision for the Democratic National Committee to make. Uh, I, I guess they just have to wait and 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 set a date right now and say, okay, we got to decide something, go or not go by this date, and then just you know go with that and. And 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 what will happen is what will happen. But this virus is not going to go away. So I just I, I don't know. It's it's going it's going to be it's going to be tough. And and it could be a disaster in about four or five different ways for for each party. Uh, unfortunately, if the Republicans have the wrong decision with all those people coming it their decision of course could be more than disastrous it could be fatal for a lot of people so yeah definitely and i tell you what it's so sad how polarized we are uh, because let's yeah. say we were in a i don't know we'll just say 1976 environment and there's probably plenty of other mm-hmm. years more recent even in 1992 i think George Bush and uh, Bill Clinton's campaigns probably could have worked something like this out. Um, I think, you know, 2008, I think John McCain and some of his supporters might not like it, but I think John McCain and Barack Obama could have worked this out. If you right. had a convention, let's say we're going to do a virtual convention on the same week, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to have night one. You pick your keynote speaker. You pick your keynote speaker. The Republican one can go second since they're the party in power, you know, every single night if you want to do it that way. Night one, the keynote speakers. You speak, you, you get roughly an hour and a half, maybe a two-hour window. They can do a little preview on all the networks. They can do a little wrap-up, a little gap in between. They give the speeches. Night two, the spouses both speak because that's pretty traditional. Or you, know, you wanted to have somebody else speak, you could. Um, then night three, the VP candidates speak. In one case, somebody's really going to be bursting onto the scene. Odds are that's going to be the most new commodity in this whole thing is going to be um, you know, the Democratic VP nominee. Then the final night, Joe Biden speaks, Donald Trump speaks. 
They do their and they do it all in where people can compare and get a sense of democracy. Okay, I like what this person said. I like what this person said. I'm just talking for that voter out there that seemingly still likes parts of both parties. Um, I know those are becoming rare breeds, um, but that's what mm-hmm. you could do in a not so highly partisan partisan environment. And I do think that you know Donald Trump and his people like to win. Um, Fights that really shouldn't even be fights. So um, I think mm-hmm. Joe Biden might be a little more um, open to that, uh, seeing that he's been campaigning from a basement for the past roughly two months. Um, mm-hmm. But that would be a way to get a semblance of a convention that still gives plenty of media exposure, probably gets more people watching because it'd be this one, that one. It'd be more like debate like um, numbers. With your, um, uh, you know, your viewership, which you think that's what you want to do. You want to get in front of as many polls as possible and, and make your case. Um, what do you think about that kind of scenario? And then, of course, you can poo-poo it, of course, because the odds of it aren't good. <laughs> I poo-pooed that part. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, you know what I've been thinking about? Hollywood. Why do the Democrats not call on Hollywood and all their wizardry to come up with something spectacular that would play well on television yet would promote the safety features that seem to be more popular in our party? And the other, there's got to be a way. Um, Nancy Pelosi, you know, I'd mentioned this to you. She 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 was talking about um, a one day pared down thing with uh, one of the large stadiums up there. Now she mentioned stadiums of eighty thousand, and you correctly mentioned she'd have to leave Milwaukee to do that. But the baseball field up there. Um, I believe it's Miller Park. Um, seats 40 for baseball, and that ain't counting the field surface itself. You could probably put all the delegates in that place and do your social distancing thing, have them seated, you know, apart. And have some semblance of a convention, but how would that look on television? And a one-day thing, how would you even do it all in one day? Because you were just talking about all the people that really need their turn to speak, like the spouses, friends. How would you do it all in one day with a smaller crowd, and what would that look like? Yeah, I, that's why I don't think you base uh, you don't um, try to do it one day for TV purposes. Well, now, if you want live then, people there, you want to get the then, stadium. There's a few things they could do. One, don't have it Milwaukee and Charlotte. And here's the thing: say Milwaukee in 2024, you are hosting the Democratic convention. Charlotte in 2024, you're hosting the Republican convention. Nobody loses out there. And so you're going to get your convention. You're just going to wait four years, and you're going to get a good convention. You're not going to get this, you know, everybody's afraid to do anything, and everybody's getting takeout to the room or room service or whatever. You're going to get a real convention that has an economic yeah. impact. And then you say, look, if we're going to do – if let's say Nancy Pelosi's idea is feasible, we put the 20,000 Republican delega- delegates, we put the 20,000 Democratic delegates in different nights in this 80,000-seat stadium. I don't know what the capacity of FedEx field – that the Washington Redskins play in, but you do it in that field. You set up all the bunting pretty much. You change an elephant and a donkey out, whatever you got to do. Um, but you do it, you know, pretty close together. That way um, you have one centralized location. It's good for Donald Trump. It's good for Joe Biden as far as not traveling far. A lot of your people that are coming to it don't have to travel um, so it's going to save some money. They go back home. They're risking less virus, and you just move the sucker to – Landover, Maryland, I believe, is, is somewhere in Maryland well, that, that um, FedEx fields in. That, that to me, would be kind of a compromise position. And once yeah, again, it yeah, would take that, a little coordination of the parties and, and be a good thing. <laughs> Jim? 
And therein we have our dilemma because, as we know, Donald Trump is going to have his convention wide open in Charlotte with as many people as he can get there. He really wants to grab that football stadium and pile it full of people. And so, you know, he's going to say, look at us. We are searching ahead. We're coming back. We're all the way back. Here comes the economy. Thanks to us. Look at the Democrats hiding in their houses, drawing unemployment instead of working, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that, that, there, there we are. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have an answer uh, for the Democrats right now. The Republicans have obviously settled on theirs. Yeah. Once again, if, um, you know, it's all in what other people do. I think if the NFL is playing um, or not playing, that's mm-hmm. going to have a look. If, uh, you know, baseball plays or not play with fans. Now, of course, if they do something without any fans and it's just the athletes, that looks a little different. And if there's nobody playing, no sports even happen without fans, um, that's going to even make uh, having a convention look even more like a risky proposition. Well, um, mm-hmm. thanks again to Dr. Dr. Michael Bitzner for coming on the show, and we hope Catherine feels better for next week. Until then, by the Kudzu Vine. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.